0: listening to The Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Vint Podcast. My name is Brady, joining once again, Billy Galenko in the studio. Coming back from a couple days of travel around the Greek islands, that was refreshing and fun, but I feel like there's a lot that need to be filled in about Billy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So welcome back, Brady. We had a bunch going on. When you were gone. We've had a bunch of sellouts just in the past week, which is really exciting. And then also on the podcast today, we'll have an interview with Bartholomew Broadbent, who is the son of famed, basically wine writer, Michael Broadbent. I think everybody has probably heard that name. Their name is also associated with Broadbent selections. They they make their own wines or they kind of work as a negotiant and sell them around the world. So really fascinating conversation. The type of kind of like a wine family that has such a storied history, like the types of vintages that he's referencing that they, they would drink regularly was absolutely mind boggling. And then uh, his Julia child story at the end was, was interesting. But when a guy can just throw out that he had a, I was having a conversation, you know, I was on a panel with Robert Parker and Julia child. I think, I think that's a good start to a story. So yeah, it was definitely for me. It was like I said, in the interview sitting at his
1: feet, listening and learning and yeah, some great stories from, Someone whose family is, you know, woven into the fabric of the wine world, so really cool. And then there's there's three collections. We did have our a couple sellouts, some quick and some that have kind of been lingering on the platform for a little bit. But do you want to talk a little bit about what sold out while over the last seven days?
2: Yeah, we had the the Vogue Musoni collection sold out. We had the All Rarities collection sell out, and then as of this, this filming, it was yesterday, or this recording, we had the McAllen 78 Red Series sell out. And that, that one sold out in way less than an hour. That was a really exciting collection. But yeah, so we we, we still have the Bordeaux EP collection on the platform. Again, the, the goal for this one is to keep it open and allow you know everyone to have a chance to invest in, in these awesome On Per More futures, which are, should be an integral part to everybody's portfolio. And then we're going to continue to supplement that with more collections coming up. We'll be announcing a number coming up here soon over the next week or so. Also, it's the end of the quarter, so we will be having the Q3 quarterly report coming out. Again, this is going to be a similar format to last time, more updates on regions, updates on you know, just kind of an overview from the vent point of view of what the wine market's doing, as well as some updates on distributions that I think many people have heard already.
1: Yeah, we're continuing, I think, to be really active, taking advantage of some of the upticks in the market. I know that our, the index for the fine wine the fine wine 1000 is up from around 11% to over 14% now year to date. So we've seen some really strong movement across the industry or sorry, across the market. So yeah, I think we'll be able to announce some more distributions, especially over the next, this coming year as we close out 2022 as well. So a lot of good opportunity coming up.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think, I guess there's two aspects on what I want to touch on there, but yeah, that we got the Q3 report from the LiveX 1000, which is kind of a barometer for the wine market. And, yeah, even in these these turbulent economic times, the wine market continued to kick up and tick up. And it was also in the face of the, the standard doldrums, which happens in the wine world every August when everybody goes on vacation. Mm. Basically, the wine market tends to dip. So it was really interesting to see the the momentum kind of ha- like really increase again when you're going through September. We saw much of the the gains in most of the major indices in September itself. So they were able to power through economic issues as well as people on vacation as well as some of these currency fluctuations as well. You've been seeing a lot of of American merchants become really active in in the European markets due to the, the strong dollar and the pound and the euro kind of dipping. Yeah,
1: If you look at every macro or sorry, every chart over the last three years in most asset classes, you can see the macro events happening based on dips and valleys in the charts, right? That's just hasn't really been present in one. I'm not sure if you would be able to pick out the events of the last three years you know, on a a chart surveying the wine market. So
2: yeah, really excited about the strength. And
1: yeah, I think our wine team's doing really
2: well. Yeah. And then last note before I want to, I want to hear a little bit about your vacation. I would say last note is thank you again to everybody who tuned into our webinar. I I believe the recording is available. If anybody would like to listen to it, we sent it out afterward. But thank you for everyone for attending. And if you have any questions on anything that we shared, please, please reach out. But Brady, in the meantime, let's hear a couple highlights from your, your Greek gallivanting, as I called it. Yeah, I was bound, Well, we didn't do too much bouncing around. We flew into Athens
1: and spent a couple of days there, which was cool. Yeah, seeing all of there is to see by way of ancient history there. And then we took a flight to Santorini, maybe one of the more well known islands, of the Greek islands. You've seen pictures of the blue domed, whitewashed churches on the coast. That was where we were at. The island isn't very big, it takes about 40 minutes, 45 minutes to drive, tip like kind of end to end. It's sort of crushing. Crescent shaped island, and uh, yeah, we you know did some exploring and some sightseeing, and also visited several producers. I was really interested in finding out more about Assyrtiko, which is sort of the the flagship grape of the island. Even though there are, I believe, over three hundred varieties that are unique to Greece, Assyrtiko has really thrived on Santorini, it's kind of the benchmark for for that varietal Santorini wine. So, yeah, the we went to four different producers. I'd say we went to three of the top five producers in the in the area. We visited Estate Argiós, Domain Segalas. We visited Art Space, uh, which was a really awesome producer that also was hosting a large art installation, kind of in the dugout caves where the winery is situated. We were introduced to them because we had a 2013. So. Mm-hmm a um, nine-year-old asir to go wine during our anniversary dinner that we had while we were there and so then we ended up going to the producer and we had a really awesome experience with the with the patriarch of the estate who spoke very little english but gave us you know a tour that only he could sort of thing and
2: so that was a lot of fun oh man that's that's fantastic i'm pretty jealous yeah and then you had uh, we'll we'll talk with Bartholomew a little bit more, but you were able to check out some old vines too, some vines and have wines that were from, you know, vines that were over a hundred years old, right?
1: Yeah. Some of the, you know, obviously individual blocks in in vineyards, have older vines than others. And so, yeah, there's certainly a ton of vines that are over a hundred years old. I think some of the wines that we were tasting were from 140, 150 year old vines. Yeah. They have a lot of really unique techniques there. I think just sitting on the kind of the patio and looking out over the vineyards, you can see maybe three different techniques in terms of the ways that they were training the vines, how they were, you know, for instance, with some of the white wines, they're doing basket training, which is basically where the vines are basically sitting on the ground, and it's sort of a, a cone or a nest shape woven around and around and around. And so there's kind of the, the, the vine looks like sort of a bowl. And that protects the grapes, especially from the high winds that they have there on the island. And then there are also some more what we think of when we think of trellised vines in lines. Also, obviously had those and they also had vines growing just in rows on the ground, like splayed out, sort of like if you would think of maybe a pumpkin patch <laughs> and, and vines just laying down. And the reason why they're able to, to do that successfully is because it's all volcanic soil in Santorini. So the soil is completely dead. There's no. You know there are no insect life or anything alive and organic in the actual soil itself, and so the vines are pretty and the fruit are pretty resistant to things like you know bugs and rot and these kinds of things. It only rains nine days a year on average
2: on the island, which I thought was really incredible. Yeah, that's nuts. And speaking of the volcano side of things, fun fact that the the island's a crescent shape because the whole Island was once a a volcano with the cone up in the middle, and then it exploded. And I, I was just double checking here, like sixteen hundred BC ish, and the cone collapsed in on itself. So all you are is on on part of the rim of one of the volcanoes. That's that's wild, and it's it's weird to think that also happened when people like that. That's recorded history ish. Like you know, people were living there. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it it happened
1: again in the twentieth century. I don't know the exact date, but there was a obviously less devastating but still devastating eruption that basically moved everyone back to Athens in the mainland until the 70s or 80s, I believe. Mm-hmm. When folks came back, I might have the dates a little bit wrong on that. But yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely a unique experience. The wines were, I mean, the Assyrtiko wines were incredible. Some of the best white wines I've had, especially with, you know, six to nine years of age, really, really incredible and complex and with awesome acidity. The only thing that maybe threw me a little bit is the alcohol in the wines are extremely high 14 14 a half percent is pretty common obviously the, the acidity is really high and so you know some of that is masked but it it certainly sneaks up on you
2: yeah <laughs>
1: with with you know white wines of that that high
2: alcohol yeah you don't normally get that because as as wines normally ripen the sugar the acid kind of converts over a little bit with that and turns into sugar so you don't normally find high alcohol wines with high acid, but that's one of the special things about Assyrtiko and those volcanic soils. So, yeah, I, I could see that being an issue. Like I, I could totally actually the, one of the, I mean,
1: aside from the age Assyrtiko, which was definitely the wine of the wine of the trip, the is a blending grape called a A T H I R I that is basically never bottled as a you know a single varietal hundred percent. And uh, State Argios, who we had a, a great tasting with, did bottle it 100% a theory. And that was maybe the wine of that tasting. It was really awesome. But they wouldn't sell it to me. They said, we don't have it. I was like, you're pouring it for your tasting. It's like, oh, we don't have it to sell. I was like, oh, <laughs> I, I couldn't talk them into selling it to me as long story short. But that was that was really an unexpected and really awesome wine.
2: Nice. Well, glad you had a good time. Glad you're back. We were getting a little tired of answering everybody's support messages. By we, it was mainly just (laughs) Nick, our CEO was handling a lot of it because Jordan was gone too.
1: I'm back. I'm back and available. Back and available.
2: Awesome. Well, glad to have you back. And we're now glad to share this interview with Bartholomew Broadbent. Enjoy. Well, we have a very (laughs) special guest today, Bartholomew Broadbent. Thank you so much for joining. My pleasure. Yeah. So I've mentioned with you a couple of Times, but we, we've had many people recommend that we have Bartholomew on. So, for those of you who recognize the Broadbent name, he and his father are come from a, are basically two of the you know biggest paragons in the wine wine industry in the past you know many decades. So, we're, we're excited to have you on, and we'd we'll love to hear a bit about your your storied background there.
3: Well, thank you. Yeah, my father, who you referenced, is particularly relevant to the. Wine investment world, and that's because he, Michael Broadbent, started the wine auctions for Christie's in 1966, and then started wine auctions in America for Hubline, and then the Napa Valley wine auction he co-founded with Robert Mondavi, and he then established the Christie's auctions in America and and also planted them around the world, from Australia to Switzerland to, to all over the place, and. But so he was a director of Christie's until his his death in 2020, 2020. But the the other two things he wrote a bunch of books. I think there are over fifty books with his either written by him or or partly written by him. And there are two important ones. The first one is called Wine Tasting, published in nineteen sixty eight and continuously in print. It was last updated the year before he died and it's the, the seminal book on, on on how to organize prop, proper tastings but more importantly for the investment investors he wrote a book called started off as the great vintage wine book and then sort of subsequent editions the third edition they changed it to michael michael brabent's vintage wine and this is the most important reference book on on old wines, on collecting wines, on how wines appreciate how they develop because of his exposure to old wines and the finest and rarest wines. Through Christie's, he, he basically, it was the first book ever published with wine tasting notes in it. And it is it goes back three centuries. In fact, the probably the oldest wine is, is certainly from 1600s, so more than three centuries probably and that's hasn't been updated in a in a little bit but it is the the standard reference if anyone that wants to know what does 1961 Lafitte or 1945 Latour you know any old wine that you want to reference and see where it is in its drinking tra- 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 trajectory that's the book where you look it up so anyway that's my background i left england when i was 20 to moved to Canada to work for a wine agency and then got recruited in 1986, 1985, to work for the Symington family who are a big port-owning family. And they basically hired me to start a company in in the States to import their wines, but also to go around the US teaching Americans about port and Madeira, port initially. Then in 19... 88, they asked me if I thought I could sell Madeira, and I said yes because I knew the fantastic history of Madeira in America. And so I launched, I, I, I relaunched Madeira for them in 1989, and because Madeira had been absent since Prohibition until 1989. Mm-hmm. And so we relaunched it, and I've spent the past 35 years going around 36 years going around teaching americans about Madeira too
2: wow yeah and then in broadbent selections which is that that kind of company there too you have wines from all over the world as well right
3: yeah so i left them after 10 years to start my own company broadbent selections in 1996 initially it was just to start my own brands of Port of Madeira, which we did. You actually may see the Broadbent Madeiras going back as far as 1933, even though we started our company in 1996, and that's because I sent my parents to the island when we started it and asked them to source some spectacular old barrels of Madeira, which we would bottle with our own name on. So Broadbent Madeira started in 1996. Broadbent Port started. We, our first vintage was 1994, but then. First, then I, I got approached by some other uh, wine producers, Constantine Guntram from Germany, and and they asked me to represent them since I didn't have to only do Port Madeira since it was now my company, my own company. And so we now represent you know everything. We, we've got three fantastic Burgundy producers. We've got three fantastic Italian wineries. We've got some iconic wines like Chateau Moussa from Lebanon. We've got wines from basically all over the world. Chile, Argentina, Australia, New Zealand, Portugal, of course. Uh, And some of them have our own brands. We make Vina Verde and Table Wines in Portugal and Austria. But most of them, we represent 40 different wineries from around the world.
2: Awesome. Yeah. So through all of these... I guess to build these relationships you know to to get all these u- unique and high quality producers in your portfolio, I'm sure there's been some interesting stories along the way have you what are a couple of you know experiences you might have had either going to Lebanon or elsewhere that might be interesting to kind of we could share
3: yeah i mean- Shamuzzar from lebanon is is one of the most iconic brands in the world, certainly in the top twenty brands in the world and it was Relatively unknown back in '96 when it was he was actually very very well known in England. He was a household name in England because in 1979 they named him Decanter, the very first winemaker of the year, from which they continued annually naming someone after that. But he was the first one. And and when I started my company in 1996, he wanted he wanted me to represent him, but he had he wanted me to wait until my company was. Established, and after about three years, he said, "Okay, you've survived the crucial period," and and he appointed us. But when I was growing up in in England in 1979, when Château musard was discovered in England, uh, it was a Bristol wine fair in London, and um, in England, and my father had a Christie stand. I was sort of slave labor helping him. Um, and Serge Hoshar, the owner of Château musard came up to him and said, uh, "Michael, I want you to taste my wine." The civil war was too just too chaotic and in Lebanon, so he had to find export markets. So he went to my father, and my father wrote about it in Decanter, because my father also wrote for Decanter for 433 consecutive months. And he 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 wrote about it in Decanter and declared it the discovery of the year. And he handed me the glass and said, well, you must taste this. And I tasted it, and immediately... And bear in mind, back then, our house wines at home were 1961 Clarets, 1945 Clarets. So <laughs> I was drinking the very best of the best. But at that moment, when I tasted Chateau Moussard for the first time, I, I said immediately, there's the best wine I've ever had in my life. And yeah. I've never strayed from that. And it is now recognized as one of the greatest wines in the world, along with the things like Vegas Sicilia and Grange Hermitage and Chateau Moussard. It's, it's in that sort of ilk. And as an investment wine, it's probably one of the greatest performing wines of all time. It, it basically goes up in value every year because they pull, pull wines back. And as they release it, they, they release it. And the sort of current prices are up there with the first growth Bordeaux and the Feats on the Tours of the World because the you know, older vintages, you can buy older vintages you know, 19, from 1960s which are in the thousands of dollars now. Wow. But they they usually get launched at about $60, $70, and then they just appreciate every year they go up in value. Interesting. When, you're, when
1: you're when you're that young, having so many, like you said, incredible wine experiences at home and getting to taste the best of the best, was there ever a question, a question whether or not you, this was the industry that you would be in or was it just, you know, it was so natural? From From what age did you know that this was going to be your life's work uh, as well?
3: Yes, yeah, stupidly, I, I I should have been Hugh Grant or something and done an easy job of, like acting or something. But <laughs> no, I, my parents never encouraged us. I have a sister who's actually now a, a high court judge in UK and very successful. She she was knighted, is Dame Lady Dame Arbuthnot, and and so she went off on a completely different course. I was didn't really know what else to do. First time I took tasting notes we were staying at chateau tour and the i was I think i was 16 at the time and the director said to me we gave us 1865 the tour and said this is the first and last time you will ever taste it so i took notes i've had it twice since um, two or three times <laughs> <laughs> but, um, that's when i started taking notes but i after school, I did a cooking course, then I went to work as a tour guide at Hennessy and Cognac, then I worked for Harrods Wine Department, then I went to Australia to pick grapes and work in a, wine, a couple of wineries in Hunter and Barossa. And when I was in Australia, I, I met Mark Hugel from Alsace and traveled wow. with him going to wineries and his enthusiasm sort of brushed off on me and I I wrote I called home and said, hey, I, to my father, I think I'm, I want to go into the wine business. And so he said, well, okay, then come home immediately because there's an opening at Harvey's Fine Wine Merchants in Palm Island. So I rushed home, got that, and uh, that's where I met the guy who offered me a job in in
2: Canada. Wow. Wow, that's quite the, quite the dream. I think if I were to – I also did a small small stint in Australia, but I, I wish, you know, Hugo would come up to me and be like, hey, do you want to – like check out some stuff with me <laughs> i would have been in well
3: it. he was my age at that time you know it's it just not like teenager working in the wineries in australia we yeah
2: we, we met we were both working at uh, Yolumba, which is Holesmith Winery. ah big fan of Yolumba. yeah i was in the middle of nowhere in the limestone coast so i worked with a lot of people who were like sheep farmers outside of what they were doing so it wasn't quite as helpful as that well that's that's so cool can you describe the wines of um so I think we it a little bit more, just for those who like, you know, aren't familiar with like the varietals that are in it, and you know, kind of what it's like, and then we'll we can kind of transition from there. Because I'm still
3: yeah, well, they make a they make a white and a red, and the white's actually fascinating because it's such a two varietals which have no links to any other grape vines with DNA testing, whereas every other vine in the world has links to to DNA. And they're very unique wines. They're wines which age phenomenally. The, the oldest I've had is 1954 and it just gets more and more honeyed. It's a dry wine, but it gets honeyed and beautiful. It's, it really develops kind of like the from Chateau. The dry white wine from mm-hmm. um, chateau Cam, And it's a wine which you can keep opening in the glass, covered with to keep dust out. You keep it for five months and it's still going to be developing in the glass. The red wines are Cinso Carignol and Cabernet Sauvignon. So in style, they can... In fact, there was a <coughs> tasting group in Baltimore, Maryland, who had three consecutive weekly tastings. They do blind tastings. And one week, they had a tasting of Chateauneuf-du-Papes, one week Bordeaux's, and one week Burgundies. And each time, some guy sneaked in Chateau musard to those tastings. And in each tasting... No one guessed it, it was not the Bordeaux or Burgundy or Chateau du and uh, they ranked it the best wine of the tasting. So after that, they banned Chateau Muzar at their tastings. <laughs> um, but I particularly like it. It's if you're a person who likes Chateau Margot for instance, you might love Chateau Muzar because there's a an element of the a volte in Chateau Muzar, which is I find very appealing and. There's a very subtle but, uh, amount of Brett earthy character, which you get in the like, or on some boroughs. Also, it's the most natural wine in the world. In fact, the, the so-called natural wine movement, which was established first in Italy and then spread around the world, the reason it was started in Italy was someone visiting Château Musard and seeing that they were making this wine without anything. And so, well, if you can do that in but Lebanon, you can do that in, in, in Italy. And bear in mind that we would know Lebanon as one of the greatest wine regions of the world had it not had been for the Civil War, because the Romans built the Temple of Bacchus in the Beccar Valley. And so back in Roman times, the Romans considered the Beccar Valley to be the greatest wine-producing region in the world. And, and really, it's the birthplace of wine now, around that area.
2: Wow. Yeah, no, I'm working through Hugh Johnson's The Story of Wine, and I'm getting about to the end of the Roman period, so <laughs> <laughs> that is top of mind.
3: The Romans also grew grapes in England and, and basically invented sparkling wine, and today with Global Warming, the English are making superb sparkling wines, and the top one is is called Gusborn, and I put that against champagne any day i think it's making as good as champagne if not better um in the
1: cafe yeah i had a 2010 wiston this wiston maybe how you say it w-i-s-t-o-n stayed mm-hmm. this past winter and still the best sparkling wine i've had
3: yeah yeah, yeah. Really. They, they are fantastic and and i would say they the people you know personally i love Old Champagne, like uh, 1928, vintage would be fantastic. And I think these wines from England, the good ones like Buzzborn, would have a potential to age in a cellar. I'm personally anti investing in wine for the purpose of, of selling it at a profit. I know it happens, unfortunately, and Christie's really created that market. My father created the market, but my father and I both shared the opinion that really wine is a drink and it should be age to drink and i suppose as an investor if the investment fails you can always drink the stuff which is a benefit but but to me i invest in wines for
2: drinking later on not for selling personally yeah that makes sense and i think there there are categories you know like like bordeaux for example or, or burgundy there, there's some of these wines that do need that time anyway to yeah. age in. Not everybody can have their full cellar. So that's that's part of what we kind of do here at Vint is we we get the wines as close to the producer as possible. And then we take, you know, keep them in pristine condition, make sure they're taken care of. And then, you know, down the line, they they will be resold and eventually enjoyed. But it's kind of along the way, raising the awareness of these great wines and the vintages for people who may not have exposure to them otherwise. So on that note, speaking of exposure, can you talk a little bit more about Madeira and kind of what it is and why it needed to be reintroduced to the U.S.? Also, I'm very happy that it wasn't in the United States until 1989 because that was my my birth year. So now I feel like I'm even more one with Madeira.
3: Yeah. So Madeira was actually basically invented through shipping to America because it was an island. It is an island off the coast of Morocco, and the trade winds between Europe and America. And the, they used to use the barrels of of Madeira wine as ballast in the bottom of the boats, and the one day, one of the boats arrived in the, state sub- savannah or wherever it was going, they forgot to unload it. They returned to the island, tasted it, and found it was much better than before it left, and they figured having crossed the ocean twice, it heated the wine. So to this day, we still simulate that voyage by heating the wine to 115 degrees Fahrenheit for a minimum of, of, of three months, and also It's fortified, so it's like a port. It is fortified with with grape brandy. It became the biggest selling wine in America by a long shot. If you read any history books, not textbooks at school because all references to alcohol are removed from children's textbooks at American schools, but if you read proper history books about the founding fathers, there's, there's references to Madeira everywhere because they drank Madeira all the, all the time, Const- the Constitution was toasted with Madeira, Dec- Decoration of Independence was toasted with Madeira. It was the biggest selling wine in America until Prohibition, and then Prohibition wiped out the market, 95% of all Madeira was sold in America until then. And the post-Prohibition shipping had, had improved, the Second World War improved shipping, so the, The island never got rediscovered and it became known as a forgotten island wine. And so it just never, never recovered. But back in 1989, when I relaunched Madeira, we did it with a a tasting at the Four Seasons Clift in San Francisco. And we had had about 400 people come out to this tasting. We had 19 wines going back to 1845. Overnight, the the market was reborn. Before that, only two restaurants in America sold Madeira. One was probably Burns Steakhouse because they bought old auction Madeira, but the other one was Masses, who gave you a choice between Chateau Chem or Madeira with the foie gras. But overnight, the Madeira market, every single restaurant A, B, and some C restaurants in in America in, in San Francisco had Madeiras by the glass, Trevinia poured seven Madeiras by the glass following that tasting. One of the beautiful things is that once you open the bottle, it never goes off. The wine itself is indestructible. And to give you an idea of the investment potential of that wine, so I sold the 1845 back in 1989. We were selling that for $45 a bottle retail. and Today it's over $3,000, so it's a good investment. And unfortunately, Madeira is very scarce. There are only eight producers. We make a broad Madeira and sadly, there's just not a lot of land that you can cultivate because all the vines back from the 1800s, 1700s, 1800s got ripped up and replanted with other crops that they could survive off. So Madeira is a finite product and as the market grows in America we've been seeing the prices go up and up and up. So it is a very good investment wine something we're we are very proud of at broadvent madeira is that we launched a a single uh cask uh vintage madeira so you can we went around our, our cellars looking for the very best madeira's casks and usually madeira is blended with different barrels to, to produce madeira but we found these single casks and bottled them as single casks and that's been really fun in beautiful wooden boxes and, and really meant for collecting but <clears throat> as far as storing material you should keep them um, it's the only way which you should store standing standing up not lying down
2: yeah that makes sense yeah no so i have two questions one when it comes to the more like mid 1800s stuff like you can still find a few around. I've been I've been lucky enough to have an 1860s one phylloxera and was it was it powdery mildew? It was odium, I think. All, had a big effect in the mid 1800s on the quantity that was available. Anyway, right?
3: Yeah, first, well, so odium destroyed all, most of the vines for a while, but then phylloxera in the 1860s because of a trading between America and Europe stopping in Madeira during in the trade winds. Madeira was the first place to get hit by phylloxera, which came from America. So, the, the bug which eats the roots of European vines so almost all of the vines in Europe are now grafted onto American rootstock to survive because they're resistant to this bug but yeah that's that's right it took a while to recover and actually one of the offshoots of that was Solera Madeira which is we find occasionally it's pretty rare these days but when the, the 1863 for instance Madeira was re- really good. And since had destroyed all the vines, they wanted to keep the Madeiras going, the 1863 going. So they would add other wines to those barrels. And <clears throat> there was a law, different sherry where sherry, you just have a continuous addition. It's like a waterfall. You start with the young wines, they they get gradually poured into older barrels and you might have a bottle of 1863 Solera uh, Sherry, which would have about a centimeter or two left of the original, but with Madeira, it was only you could only add to it a maximum of ten times, and not more than ten percent each time. And in the case of Madeira, what was added to the wine was older wine because they didn't have newer wine to Mm -hmm. add to it because all the vineyards had been destroyed. So Solera Madeiras. uh, and my, my father always thought the Solera Madeiras were actually even better than the vintage Madeiras. Hmm. But wow. mostly gone from
2: the market now. Ah, oh, well, that, that's a shame. Now I want to go out and search for one. But yeah, so I guess now moving back to like more modern times, when you're talking about some of the replanting, I was lucky enough to go there last summer I dragged my girlfriend there. She had no idea what she was getting into, but she likes to hike. And for those who don't know, Madeira is a beautiful place as well as you know just making great wine but and there are these it kind of just all comes up from this or at least the main island comes up from this central kind of high mountain range and uh, you'll see all these little terraces of both vines and and now bananas increasingly which is kind of a shame i wanted to you know just go give everybody like a dollar so they'll stop growing bananas and grow grapes but can you talk a little bit about like kind of the styles and and some of the the grapes that are grown there because that's it's very unique and then the i guess the beautiful
3: it's a volcanic soil. It's a volcano that comes up, it's extinct volcano. And so it's very volcanic soil. The Madeira wine table wines are extremely acidic. They've had problems making drinkable table wines because they've been so acidic. They're actually beginning to perfect it now. In fact, we have broadband table wines made from Madeira as well so the styles are and by the way i agree with you how beautiful it is and when i tell people when people say they're going to Madeira and they want to go and see the the wineries i say look spend a week there spend half a morning seeing wineries but there's so much more to see and it's so stunningly beautiful the most beautiful wine region in the world for sure and the cliffs are dramatic and it's just spectacular so don't spend too much time seeing wineries but the styles vary from dry to sweet, and they make them dry to sweet using two different methods. One is altitude, so the the sweetest grapes grow at sea level. Where it's higher up, they mature less, so they're, they're drier. So the dry g- driest grapes grow fairly high up in the hills. And then also you can adjust sweetness by adjusting when you add the brandy to the wine, because you add the brandy to arrest the fermentation before all of the sugar's being converted into alcohol. So if you want a slightly drier Madeira, you add the brandy fraction later, so a little bit more sugar is already converted into alcohol. So the wine ages, rate ends up about 19% alcohol once you've added the brandy, but you add the brandy when it's about 7 or 8%. Yeah,
2: yeah so it, it, something that I think everybody should try to explore there. You'll, you'll see Madeira kind of broadly labeled. There's like rainwater styles, but then there, there's individual varietals ranging from like, you'll see Circial, which is kind of the the most lean, I guess, lowest levels of sweetness up to what they call Malmsey or it's maybe Malvasia that's like the sweetest. And there's a bunch of really interesting varietals in between. But compared to other sweet wines, or at least to me, like this isn't a sweet wine, it's a fortified, but the acid structure that's in Madeira is is so bright and vibrant. You can, I've, I've had met ones many decades old, including that one that was you know over a century old, and it's still they're still so bright after so much time. I think that's a really iconic yeah,
3: And place. It's part of the reason that they're, they live forever and they're indestructible. They, the hallmark of the great Madeira is that searing acidity. My father's. Desert island wine was was Madeira. It's his favorite wine of all. Is Madeira also handily, um, if you're just stranded on a hot desert island, the, the Madeira is not going to be harmed by the heat. You can you can keep the <laughs> can keep the wine in the trunk of your car all summer long, and still be great.
2: Yeah, wow. and it just perfectly balances that sugar. Though, like anybody who's like, oh, I don't like fortified wines or whatever sweet dessert wines because they're too cloying. It's like this is you can have a sip of Madeira, and it just Cleans right off the palate. It's it's so good. It makes it it a great food wine too. Yeah. So, I could go on about Madeira for a while. I think we'll we'll transition for a little bit here. So, Brady was just in Greece, and you just did a talk with one of our our colleagues about old vines. Can you maybe tell people, you know, something a little bit about old vines that still exist that didn't have their roots eaten, and because some of these are still attainable at really kind of affordable prices these days as well.
3: Yeah, so at the tasting that I was doing, the seminar I was giving on old wines, two of the wines which I find most interesting came from Swartland in South Africa and Itata in Chile. And both regions have very similar stories of having been abandoned at some point. The conquistadors of Spain went from well, from through, from the Canary Islands and Madeira to Concepcion in Chile, they created the capital of Chile in Concepcion. And then so the Spanish conquistas brought winemaking over from at that time in the 1550s. And then the French invaded Chile and moved the capital to Santiago. And so most of the population moved to that region. And Concepcion and the surrounding vineyards in Itata basically became abandoned. The family Di Martino, who makes some of the greatest wines in Chile, the Di Martino family, one back in 2011, (laughs) had an amazing score for one of our wines, a hundred points or whatever it was, a top score. And they arranged a family dinner to celebrate this wine. And they poured it reverently and tasted it. And they all sat silently with the wine. And eventually the father said, does anyone actually want to drink this? And they all said no. It's horrible. And so overnight, they decided that going to go back to natural winemaking and not make over concentrated, over intense, over you know basically Parkerized wines. <laughs> and so they then started expanding and looking for vines, vineyards in different regions, old vines, and they found Itata had these. Ancient vines, probably some of them may have been planted in the 1550s by conquistadors. And they started, it was pais and musket and stuff like that. And mm. they started making these wines totally naturally, the way that it would have been made in the days of the 1550s, Spanish conquistadors, to the extent they even searched the surrounding hills for farms or gardens which had old amphora clay pots which were being used as flower pots and they they sort of went to these owners and said can i buy your flower pot and i said sure and they they found about 300 300 which didn't leak and they could actually make wine in so they started making wine natural yeast natural amphoras made from the adobe clay and then they well, it's not Adobe clay, but it's the same type of clay that you get in the, in the Adobe Desert. And they started making these wines, and 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 under the Di Martino, Itata Viejas Tinajas labels, old wine labels, uh, old amphora labels, and a spectacular. And so you can taste wines exactly as they would have tasted five hundred years ago, which is 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 I find really fascinating. And then the Swartland in, San Francisco, in, in South Africa. Eben and Adi Badenhorst were pioneers of that, pioneers of that region. Evansadi, Sadi, in fact, won, got named by the winemakers in the world. It was, it was called the Winemakers Winemaker Award, which is given at ProVine in Germany. And Evansadi won this award, being named the best winemaker in the world by all winemakers. And he's making wines from these ancient vines. He's got vines back to the... 1860s, and it's again. It was in a, a region called Swartland, which was the biggest wine producing region in South Africa. But that got abandoned during apartheid, and so when the new wineries came in after apartheid, they all set up shop in Stellenbosch and Powell and places like that. So after working for big wineries, Evans, Adi, and Adi Badenhorst wanted to have their own wineries, and they found that they could actually afford to buy vineyards and vines. And plus, the vines in Swartland were actually still on their nat- natural rootstock and hadn't been touched for years. So they they're now making these great old old vine wines in, in South Africa.
2: Nice. Yeah, Brady was just having some some old vine go, I assume.
1: Yeah, go. I think some. Hun- oh, I mean, many vines are over a hundred years old, but I think some of the. Older ones were 140 to 160.
3: We in Lesbos or what, what area of Greece were you we in?
1: Oh, we're in Santorini. Santorini. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we were drinking Surtico <laughs> and the blending grapes, Etherea and Idini, and then they have a a red varietal. They're growing there, Mavertragono, which, yeah, is a lighter to medium body red varietal that is maybe more of a table wine there. But,
2: yeah, yeah. I would say for people, you know, not everybody can afford or find some of these wines that are, you know, were made hundreds of years ago or even 50 years ago. But like working in Australia as well, like if you see old vines from from the Barassa, there, there are some of these wines out there that are, you know, not exorbitantly expensive in the grand scheme of things. And you can you can taste wines that, you know, are on their own roots. And and for those who for more context, like Phylloxera, you might know the percentage better than me. But, you know, it wiped out a, a majority of the vines in, in Europe at the time. So so vines that are planted throughout the world that aren't on, you know, American rootstock, which basically means like they'll plant, you know, say Cabernet Sauvignon, but the bottom roots will have come from an American root to make it basically resistant to phylloxera. The, the percentage of those vines in the world are very small. So it makes these wines, these old vines yeah. very special for the roots. Yeah. Yeah.
3: It's very interesting you mention Australia because, yeah, in the Barossa Valley, you're right, there's a company called Cirillo, which has the has really ancient vines and also a couple who make wine there under a brand called An Approach to Relaxation, which are very old wines. But also Tyrells in Hunter Valley has probably the oldest Chardonnay and Semillon vines in the world um, because they are not impacted by phylloxia. They're protected from phylloxia because it just never reached there. And and the way that they keep the vines growing, the oldest Chardonnay vines in the world, is that when they see the vine is getting too old, they will plant, bend over one of the branches and bury it in the ground. And then it starts growing as a new vine and they just cut it off. And so it's the same vine that has been propagated and reproducing. So they're very proud of that. Chardonnay um, and they're the biggest semillon producers.
2: Um, yeah. They're
3: we, we, they're making great wines, in fact, with Tyrrells.
2: Yeah, we definitely definitely encourage everyone to check out Turles. Definitely their semion. I guess they're their Chardonnay too. I haven't had that. Yeah, we saw some old I was in Slovenia earlier this year, and we saw some old vines and their their old vines kind of just grow up these buildings, which is pretty cool
3: yeah um, that's like in the Tata and up the trees and and you can't get your arms around them they're so thick some of them
2: yeah, yeah. but can, can you aside from just being old and having their own roots can you describe like kind of i i know it's hard to blanket statement but some of the the quality of the wines like what what's different from a wine that's made from really old vines versus like you know you know one that's 10 20 years maybe
3: there's a a a, a depth that you get from old vines a wisdom you get from old vines is you know, vines are and wines are like people they they you know when a, a a grape vine is young the vine they're producing a lot of grapes so it's a really abundant sort of fruity wine but and the more the more grapes per vine the lighter in 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 ways that the wine's going to be because it's getting plenty of water but when the vine is 120 years old it really struggles to it's old it struggles to get any nutrition it works so hard for each grape but it just produces a wine that it's, it's got just so much more quality than a, a young Vibrant wine, and you know, <clears throat> of, of, like the old vines at Chateau Muzard, the white vines they get one one glass per vine, mm. uh, which is the same yield as Chateau Chem when they're making sweet wines because their their wines are shriveled up and they don't get much juice out of them either. But <clears throat> the 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 older the vine, the more it struggles, so the the greater the the depth and the and the elegance that comes out of those wines is also. I think to do with the old wines.
2: Yeah. I I've always found that the flavor tends to be like deeper. Like You're saying more concentrated. The the tannins almost, if it's a red wine, tend to be a little bit more integrated or they're just like refined. And then and
3: I'm, and I'm talking not <coughs> concentrated, not in the way that some people might think of concentrated. You know, some California cabs are just intensely concentrated and but that's a different sort of concentration. This is a concentration of elegance and charm, as opposed to just obviousness.
2: Yeah, like com- complex complexity com- yeah. concentration. It's hard to
3: <laughs> complexity <laughs> hard. is really the, the the word that you get out of all wines. It's complexity and and complex. If you say a wine is complex in a in your master of wine exam, you don't get very many points for that because you have to be able to explain what complex, why the wine is complex, in what way, but but complexity is what you get from old vines, basically,
1: and maybe yeah. m- maybe length and depth, also
2: just being demented, especially length, right? Absolutely,
3: yeah. precisely, yes, absolutely.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, and the the other interesting feature is that they've grown for so long, and their roots can go so far down that even in 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 variable years, the old vines tend to be the most consistent and produce continuous quality as well. So,
3: yeah, and they get another. different. Different nutrients. The deeper the vine goes, it gets different different nutrients than the ones which are just surface vines.
2: Awesome. So we're we're getting closer to the end of time here. I just have one one thing I definitely want to hit on before we go is, so I had one question about sustainability with some of the producers. You work with producers all over the world, or you've tasted at least recently. What have you seen that some producers, maybe especially in like Portugal, are doing that are proactive sustainability? type Efforts and then what are you seeing in other regions where people are going to have to, having to react to new climate conditions?
3: Yeah, I mean, one of the things which we require are basically five or six absolutes. If you look at our website, broadbent.com, and you see all the wines we represent, one of the, the things we require is they have to be family owned, they have to be making the very, very best wines in the region or equal to the peers of the greatest wines for the region, but they also have to be natural, as natural as possible. So we represent Barbersville in Virginia. We saw it in all the other states with with the exception of Virginia. And Barbersville, obviously Virginia, you can't make a natural wine because of the humidity, but you can still make a wine as naturally as possible by just adjusting for the one thing you can't escape, which is humidity. So so all of wines we represent are very conscious of sustainability and and we have a, a list of organic wines we have a list of natural wines we have but sustainability is is very important i was just actually listening to on my facebook i put a this morning a, a, a podcast with an interview with marcus huber from austria and he is they were talking about how he's sustainable and and it's very much of the concern of the wineries which which most almost all wineries represent are very concerned about that. Of course, the biggest fear they all have is global warming. Even in Lebanon, where you think all the trouble and strife they get there, they still say global warming is what worries, worries them the most.
2: Hmm, makes sense. Well, I, I don't think we mentioned this before, but I'm I'm originally from Virginia, and Brady just moved from Richmond not too long ago. So happy right. to. Give Virginia Wines a shout out. So, have, have you seen any of these producers doing anything specifically to mitigate climate change already? Or are they just trying to continue to do their their natural, you know, facilitate, um, like growing the ecosystem? Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, a lot of them are picking grapes uh, these days, a month earlier, some in some cases becoming two months earlier than, oh. than it used to be. Of course, the only people who are not really complaining about this is are the English producers who've been given the blessing from this because now they're making great wines which they couldn't do before. Maybe
2: um, German Pinot Noir producers too, Spaperginder guys. Yeah.
3: But it is, I suppose the, some of them are looking at varieties which are gonna be more more able to cope with hotter climates. But yeah, we're I think we're heading into trouble. But with your are,
2: experience in South Africa I, I was listening to a podcast recently where a a Napa winemaker was like, "We've we're we're preparing for the the future that where it's going to be warmer in Napa. We've planted some Tariga Nacional and we've planted Shenan." And I was like, "I don't know if I would have gone Shenan right away for a warm climate." But what what is your take from basically what you've seen in, in South Africa? I know that's warmer um, overall than like the Loire. No,
3: Shenan chen- chen- or Shenan is was known as Steam Steam in South Africa, and actually, it's not something they've been planting recently. It's been planted for hundreds of years in, in South mm-hmm. Africa. So it's probably the biggest single plant variety in South Africa. Yeah. But yeah, I I mean I think, you know, in in Swartland, they don't even have to look for those varieties like Tarig National, because in the Swartland they used to make the so-called ports and sherries of of South Africa in that region. So those uh, regions actually already have old wines from those varieties so that they're, they're and they are finding that they are making great wines out of those portuguese varieties broca and others
2: yeah well i guess i was mainly saying like i i know Steen is is widely planted in south africa and i think that climate tends to be when i, when I think of you know shannon blanc or shannon I think of, you know, the Loire Valley and I think of South Africa first two and the climates are very different. So I was just wondering what what your perspective is at for Shenan as a, a warmer climate grape as a whole. Like is that something like if I was like I'm going to play in a warm climate white wine or white varietal, Shenan just doesn't seem to come top of mind to me. Does does it make yeah, sense? To
3: I mean, South Africa is a warm climate, I suppose, but it actually it isn't hot like mm-hmm. parts of Australia. I've never seen it hot like that. So I don't think that's the case. I th- Beaumont probably makes the greatest of the Chenas in in South Africa. And I don't it's that's in Bot River, and I I don't really see it as a hot climate. It's it's fairly almost yeah. Mediterranean to me. So it, it sort of echoes more. Yeah. Also in Chardonnay, Devetsov makes the top Chardonnay in South Africa. And their cuttings came from Drouin's Claude Mouche and they're grown on lime sand soil, just like drought in, in the boners. So I think South Africa actually has the ideal climate for, for winemaking. Their biggest problems are droughts, really. That's the, that's the biggest problem. And it's, it's lack of rain more than heat, I think. It's, yeah, uh,
2: that makes sense. Yeah, I, I know when you get a... I'm thinking a little more inland there, like the Robertson type area, and a little bit more where they used to plant more wines for distillation that it gets a little little hot. But yeah, for the most part, it, it is optimal. Yeah, fact, the, conditions.
3: The, the, the Vets off, that's where they are in the Robertson. Have you had the Limestone Chardonnay? I have not. I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of, of most Chardonnays, but these were planted. and I love white burgundy, obviously, but and these Vines came from burgundy's and and be, limestone chardonnay is my everyday white wine at home right now, and it's 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 really really great. They're making great chardonnay in that region, really terrific.
2: Wow, to check it out. Well, awesome. Those are those are all my my questions. Thanks so much for your time, Brady. Do you have anything else you want to ask? Any any go to wine questions or anything? This was great. I mean, I'm sitting sitting at the feet and and
1: taking it all in. So I appreciate you sharing. Especially around Madeira.
2: Now I. Oh well, no, I'm really starting to run
1: out of space, but I like that Madeira we can just store on the shelf. So.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Absolutely.
3: And it's very versatile. You can drink Madeira with anything.
2: Yeah. Um,
3: I was doing a, a, a tasting, the a food and wine classic in, in Aspen. Um, um, on my Madeira tasting, my panel had Robert Parker on it with and Julia Child. And right before the tasting, Julia came up to me and said, bananas you've got to have bananas and i said what do you mean she said the greatest food wine pairing in the world is bananas and madeira so i was were little, little Nell, and i told the, the manager we've got to have bananas so i think they went to a store and bought them and sliced them up and put them in front of the places <laughs> and at the end of a tasting one of the tasers one of the audience members said can i ask a question i said sure and she, he said why do we have Bananas in front of us, and I said, "Oh, right, Julia, do you want to tell them why you wanted to have Madeira bananas with the Madeira?" And she said, "Oh dear, I can't remember." (laughs) (laughs)
2: That'll be the that'll be the clip out for this episode Mm -hmm. and ending on a Julia Child story, (laughs) right? that's hilarious all right well thank you so much bartholomew i really appreciate the time my pleasure all right well that was our interview with bartholomew broadbent stay tuned for the Vent quarterly report that'll be out in the next weeks so we'll also be announcing new collections and yeah go out and try some madeira we'll be back next week with another episode of the Vent podcast cheers
0: to check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at supportvint.co. At Vint and VV markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.